Hey, what's going on, everyone? This is Dr. Mike T. Nelson here for the Eat to Perform podcast, along with Dr. Brad Dieter. Say hi, Brad. Hey, everybody. It's uh, great to be back. It's been a couple weeks since Mike and I have gotten a chance to uh, sit down and chat, and we're uh, really excited about the conversation we're going to have today. It's um, We've got a, an awesome guest with us, somebody who's um, not only a, a leader in the field, but also a, a really good person and uh, always brings some, some hilarity to the situation. So it'll be a It'll be a fun time. Yeah, we've got on the show today Dr. Jose Antonio from Florida because he refuses to come up to Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Mike, uh, let's see. Uh, how many years ago was it when I was in Minnesota? I think it, I, it was, was four, and it was, what, 15 <laughs> below, and we were trying to get sushi, <laughs> and the traffic was horrible. And you swore, oh, like, uh, you know. this is the last time I'm ever coming to this godforsaken frozen tundra, <laughs> and he hasn't been back since. Well, the last time uh, I was in well, Minnesota, the traffic was terrible, too. It took oh, us, yeah. like, two hours just to get out of the city. Yeah, it's not fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, hey, guys, you know, it's great to be on the show, and uh, hopefully I could add some science to the hilarity, but I prefer the hilarity, actually. So, <laughs> so let's see what we come up with. <laughs> Yeah, and for some people may not know your your background, but obviously you completed your PhD work, and then you also did uh, postdoc work looking at, I think it was muscle fiber work, wasn't it? Is that correct? After you did the yeah. study on the birds, yeah, yeah I did. Um, yeah, my doctorate was on. Um, I used the stretch model to look at hypertrophy and muscle fiber hyperplasia, and then uh, after that, um, I did something that's you know. A bit rare, and I guess uh, Brad, you're doing it currently. I did a postdoc, and uh, and we actually were looking at. I was still looking at using animal models. We used the rodent model of uh, of castration, and then re um, readministering androgen to look at uh, how the androgen receptor was was <laughs> regulated in rat skeletal muscle. And uh, like you, Brad, I think I've done five trillion Western blots and. Uh, <laughs> If I never have to do a Western blot again in my life, I'll be quite happy. <laughs> there's a uh, there's a, an awesome story from my PhD lab where we had a, a grad student who came back from a committee meeting, and the committee wanted it was basically the equivalent of like 32 Western blots done in like a week, and it was Ooh. just like oh. <laughs> so there was there was a lot of tears and a lot of four letter words and uh, a lot of late nights, but we we managed to get it done. But man. That's wow. one of those things where, you know, when you see a paper with it on there, you're like, how many attempts did it take to get it looking this good? Well, let's just say 32 isn't 32. 32 could mean you screwed up 16 times and you did it 32 <laughs> to 16. So, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah, it's um, yeah for people who do any of these kind of protein biochemistry type work, it's uh, it's painstaking. It really is. And it's like, oh, my God, I'm like, I'm going crazy in this lab. <laughs> I'm going <Yep>. crazy. <laughs> So for people who are listening who are already completely, utterly lost, what is a Western blot and what does it tell us? It's well, Brad actually is doing it right now, yeah. Yeah, it's basically just a, a way to attempt to quantify proteins and, and even some modification of proteins in, in cells and tissue. And um, it's kind of a way to try to get, get an idea of what's going on to proteins. So specifically, these proteins could be in muscle or just any proteins in general then, correct? Yeah. So, you know, a lot of, like, we can kind of apply it to a lot of what people read. So when you see papers that look at, like, you know, mTOR signaling or things like that, where they show, 
um, basically a, a light spot and then a really dark spot that's supposed to correlate to there's more protein and more activation of certain proteins. So basically you, you trap proteins on a membrane and, and look at how, how the differences are between different scenarios. So a lot of times we look at muscle proteins and things like that. Yeah, you know what's interesting, uh, Mike, is that there are literally scientists who spend their entire careers looking at a single protein. And, oh, yeah. And, and it's, it's the reductionist view of science, where if you look at the tiny parts, it helps you explain the whole. But as you sort of find out in the exercise science field, it doesn't really work that way. And, for instance, in the postdoc I did, all they did in that lab was look at regulation of one protein, and that was the androgen receptor. And literally all of their studies focused on how the AR or androgen receptor was regulated. And, and you know, a lot of labs were like that. They would literally look at one protein, and they devo- devoted their entire lives and existence to it. And I thought, I thought it was – I mean, there's a role for it, obviously, because when you look at the reductionist approach to science, it works a lot of times, but I think in sports – it's it's a it's a tricky proposition. I mean, I'm glad I did it, but when people ask me, you know, would I recommend going the route I went? I said I would usually say no. I'd say instead of going that route, get an MBA and combine it with your PhD. I mean, you know, but again, that's 2020 hindsight. It's uh, and that's why, like now, uh, this this will make a nice segue. I've sort of switched completely and done. And been doing all outcomes-based research. Simple stuff like if I do X, Y, and Z, what happens? What happens? I mean, not even looking at mechanisms, just looking at you know, sort of before and after type things. So, uh, and I think in the end, we're all sort of athletes, and we're all trying to figure out how can we run faster, lift more, or in my case, paddle faster. And um, and those are sort of the kinds of questions that you know that we ask now in, in the lab I lab I'm at at Nova Southeastern University. Yeah, you guys are doing some some really cool stuff, and I think you know you've done a lot of uh, development of stuff. I've seen your your stand up paddleboard um, erg. That's that's pretty cool. And someday I want to find out how you did that. Um, but I think probably <laughs> the one of the really big things that you've done in the last few years is um, you've looked at essentially kind of when we boil it down, what happens when you give people an excess amount of protein on top of what they're normal calorie needs are and and what happens to the body and you know we kind of have this very simple view of body weight and body fat regulation being dictated solely by the number of calories you know the calories in calories out model but a lot of the research you've done kind of shows that you know it's not as simple as that right the the type of nutrients you consume do make a difference um and i'd love to hear a little bit more you know, because you've done two studies on that and you found some really cool stuff. So I'd love to hear you know, a little bit more from you, you know, about the study, kind of the results, and then also, um, you know, some of your thoughts of actually doing the study, what you feel like you learned yourself. Right. No, that, that, that excellent question. Thanks. Um, you know, it, it really stemmed from, it's not like I, I sat down and, and thought, hey, I'm going to do these experiments because it sounds cool. It was really a conversation I had with a student. And out of the blue, I'd see this guy eating all the time, and I'm, one day I said, how much, how much do you eat? Because he was a big kid. He was, he, he's like, you know, uh, 220 pounds, um, was very strong, and uh, I could tell he was, he was focused more on how he looked than studying. But anyways, I was like, well, <laughs> you, know, you, you seem to eat a lot, and how much protein do you get? And, he's, and he, he, like a lot of these guys who are kind of OCD, he actually tracked what he ate. And he said, you know, 
uh, he sort of did the math in his head, and I think he pulled up my fitness pal as well. He goes, I eat about 250 to 300 grams a day. I'm like, huh, mm. oh, that's actually a lot. <laughs> and so <laughs> it got me thinking. I said, and I like to start with simple stuff first. I mean, do the simple, simple studies first and build off that. So I thought, I wonder if I could just get a bunch of guys and girls who like protein and just have them overfeed, you know, for a period of whatever, two months. And that really was the impetus for that first study. And to be honest, I had no idea what would happen. Um, and sort of the net net of that was that the general pattern was that nothing happened, meaning you could literally overeat on, and it was mainly whey protein because there's no way. They all said there's no way I could eat food in this mm-hmm. amount. It has to be a shake. So um, the general pattern was that nothing happened, which was really kind of odd. I'm like, wow, that's they're eating a lot and nothing seems to happen. And so I thought the next step would be, why don't we incorporate a new, a different training program? Not a new one, but a different one. So they all had their way of training, and I said, let's in, implement more of a traditional bodybuilding style, style training. And in that second study, we found that um, there seemed to be a, 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 I will call it a threshold, I guess, and I hate the word threshold, but let's use it for now. Um, once you get to about 2.2 to 2.5 grams per kilo uh, per day of protein, lean body mass gains don't seem to be enhanced by eating more protein, meaning that seems to be what you need if the goal is hypertrophy and you're doing sort of a stereotypical bodybuilding training program. However, we did find that the guys and girls who ate more protein, meaning this was over three, I forget the exact number, but it was well over three grams per kilo, um, they actually lost a bit more fat mass, which I thought, well, that's really odd. Um, why are they losing fat? Then again, I wasn't looking at it mechanistically. I was just looking at outcomes. And so we decided to follow it up with a third study in which we got, I wanted to get just hardcore serious guys who just like to lift um, and who are very good at tracking. I mean, these guys were actually obsessive compulsive about tracking what they ate. And so we actually just finished that study. It was a one year long study and we measured body composition, food intake, and we actually also did blood work uh, five times over the course of the year. And the instructions we gave them, and this was easy, it was basically alternate normal protein eating, and in this case, normal for them was about 2.2 to 2.5 grams per kilo, with high protein intake, which in this case was we wanted them to go over 3 grams per kilo. So basically... Uh, for two months on, two months off, they do normal protein, high protein. And then for four months on, four months off, they do high protein, normal protein. So we spread this out over the year. And as far as exercise, we said, don't do anything drastically different. Just train the way you would train. I mean, so again, they just logged in their weight training workouts. And what we found from this one-year study, which uh, I just submitted, actually, it's in, uh, it's in review, um, well, the most interesting thing, I think, was we found no effects in terms of blood lipids, uh, liver function, uh, renal function, uh, nothing. We did a comprehensive metabolic panel. We did a full blood lipid screening. Nothing. It was as if it was a flat line, which I don't think that surprised me personally because I know a lot of guys who eat a lot of protein and they're healthy. But to a lot of people, they were like, wow, these guys are eating a bucket full and nothing changes. In fact, get this. The two guys who were the outliers in terms of extreme protein intake, they were, uh, one guy was, uh, oddly enough, he was a vegan bodybuilder. Hmm. Um, he was averaging 4.6 to 5.0 grams per kilo, of which most of that was from powder. He, he says there's no way, yeah, he says there's no way I can eat this much from 
vegetarian protein, he literally would get eight to ten scoops of protein, like rice protein, pea protein, all this other stuff. I mean, just nuts. Uh, and this guy was ripped. He was a, he was a young black guy. He was ripped. Um, he competed well locally. And um, <laughs> his liver function, kidney function, everything was fine. It was like clean as a whistle. The second guy, get this, he was, <laughs> he was kind of a funny guy. He's, if he dipped below 400 grams per day, he'd be like, oh, man, I'm not eating enough protein. I'm like, man, you are nuts. <laughs> yes, 400 was his low. He's like, These grocery I'm... bills must be Oh, obscene. my gosh. <laughs> you need a third job to pay for your protein. Well, well, here's the funny part. He was so happy to be in the study because he didn't have to buy protein. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so he's like, hey, as long as you need me to, I'll be in all your studies as long as there's protein because he just loved eating protein. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and he, again, nothing over the course of a year. This guy's eating up to, on his high day, uh, on his high months, up to six grams per kilo um, consistently. I mean, I've seen his food logs. It's, he's consistent. He's, he eats every two hours. I'm like, wow, you're like a machine. He's like, yeah, I, protein, these are his words, protein saved my life. He, uh, he, about four years ago, and I saw Instagram photos of him, he's like, you know, let's face it, look at these pictures. I was fat and I was depressed. And I looked, I was like, well, yeah, you're a little, you're kind of chubby. And he's like, <laughs> no, I was fat. <laughs> so, okay, you're a little fat. And he goes, I decided to do something about it. I decided to start lifting weights, go to the gym. He didn't know anything about this stuff. He just sort of figured it out on his own, and he decided to eat a lot of protein. And he credits weight training, uh, bodybuilding, and protein with saving his life because he was he was just he was big. I mean, he was just big. So um, so it was you know it's it's really interesting you know the kinds of data sets we get um, when we look at these guys and girls. I mean, actually, in that third study, guys who traditionally just eat a lot of protein anyways, and nothing happens when you bump their protein to really high levels, and so. I, I try to look at patterns for all this stuff, you know, because as scientists, we try to make, you know, predictions on what would happen if, if you get a client and you do X, Y, and Z. So generally, the pattern I see is this. If, if the only thing you do is have someone eat more protein, in general, nothing happens. Nothing. If your training stays the same, nothing happens. If you eat more protein and also alter the way you train, in general, you, you will probably get a fat mass loss and maybe a lean body mass gain, but it seems to be more on the fat mass loss side, if you believe that. I mean, it could be greater NEAT or thermic effect or what the hell. I, or maybe it could be this. It, it depresses your appetite enough that maybe you're eating slightly less when you're you know eating a bucket full of protein. So yeah, That's um, what I was going to ask. Were they eating more calories from protein then, or were their calories kind of evening out? It was just a higher percentage of protein then. You know, and here's the thing. I, there's so much data, I don't have time to sort of parcel out yeah, what yeah. happens individually, but they're, still, they're eating more total calories. The guys, on the, when you're on the super high side, it's more total calories of which it's coming from protein. Sure, so gotcha. It's not like, they're, yeah, they're not eating less carbs they're not eating less fat the carbs and the fat tend to flatline it's the same so there's something going on there and i don't know what it is maybe they move around more when you're on protein i, I know a lot of them complain about being hot i mean they're like i sweat i mean i, I know you're in florida <laughs> the meat sweats man the meat sweats yeah, yeah and it's like, like and i hate to say it some of them they come into the lab i'm like man you kind of smell <laughs> i mean you're like Already sweaty and glistening, I'm like, God dang, you guys. smell the nitrogen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not, you don't want to be in a crowded elevator with these guys. So, uh, <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's interesting that, you know, 
overfeeding on protein versus overfeeding on carbs and fat, the effects are n not the same at all. It's just not the same. And, and I know um, uh, Bill Campbell at University of South Florida, he did a study where he basically compared, I think it was 1.2, 1.3 grams per kilo to 2.2 to 2.4 grams per kilo in physique athletes. And he found similar results. He found lean body mass would go up when you bump up protein intake to levels that are, you know, what would be considered high or even, you know, to a lot of people, they consider it excessive. So um, interesting stuff. It's really interesting stuff. And, you know, what I've done is I've incorporated a lot of that into um, some of the case study work I'm doing with stand-up paddlers. In fact, uh, uh, one of the paddlers that I help coach, she's preparing for, and get this, this I wish I had the skill to do this kind of race, but I don't, and I never will. But he, she will be doing a race from Molokai Island to Oahu. It's called the M2O in Hawaii. Wow. It is a yeah, 32-mile race across the channel from one island to the other. Mm. And I'm, yes. <laughs> so, so the first thing I did with her, I saw her diet. I'm like, man, you don't eat any protein. So I bumped up her protein. I put her on creatine. I put her on HMB. I put her... She was on everything, and she's gotten leaner. She's gotten better. She's gotten faster. And the race is July thirty-one. So she has. She's gonna. She's gonna start tapering. You know, I think mid-month, and then she flies to Hawaii with her boyfriend, and she's got a thirty-two mile race to do. And really, I gave her no carbohydrate recommendations other than pre and during. Um, with most athletes, I don't know if this is your experience. But with most athletes, to me, it's a protein and fat issue. It's not a carb issue. It's to me, it's easy to eat carbs. I could eat well. I eat so much rice, I guess, so it doesn't matter. But <laughs> <laughs> you know, but to me, carbs are easy. I, you get them anywhere. I walk in, uh, you know, I walk in the airport and I smell Cinnabon and I head straight to Cinnabon. I want a Cinnabon because it smells good, tastes good, you know. So um, interesting stuff. It's interesting stuff. So you know. This this whole phenomenon of overeating protein and really not seeing the effect that we would assume, you know, of you eat more calories, you start to increase body weight or things like that. How much of it do you think comes from just the way the body metabolizes protein and being that, you know, the way we store carbohydrates and fat is much different than the way we store proteins and amino acids? Um, and how much of it do you think is just... A, a large uptick in protein oxidation and protein metabolism that then kind of negates all this excess protein around. How much of it would you accredit that, or how much of it would you, you know, kind of what's your hunch right now on what do you think's really going on? I, I you know what, I think uh, I try to look at it from an evolutionary standpoint. If we were, you know, if we were cavemen, and you know, you go through periods of starvation and refeeding, and and you can't really pig out on berries that you pick off a vine. You just can't. So I'm thinking humans somewhere had the ability, they evolved the ability to pig out on, on protein and fat from animals. Mm -hmm. And that they could literally sit, if they caught an animal, they could literally just sit and gorge on this animal for, for days until the animal was gone. And so, you know, we must have that ability. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Modern humans. Um, I mean, we don't we don't sit around and eat entire deers. Um, <laughs> maybe over Thanksgiving, might have a turkey. But um, I think because you can't store protein, you end up just oxidizing a big chunk of it. Mm -hmm. And and what's interesting, if you look at animals in the wild, for instance, if you look at Kodiak bears when they kill when they eat salmon, they and it, particularly when salmon is abundant, they actually throw the fish away and only eat the skin because the skin has the most fat, so it's the most calorically dense. Now, I don't think humans had that luxury. Well, let's throw the animal away. Let's just eat the fat. <laughs> well, no, you got to eat the protein and the fat, even though the fat is the most calorically dense. So, 
I think ultimately, we our bodies just not are, are just not very efficient at storing protein because you know you can't store it. I mean, you either use it for repairing tissue, whether it's skeletal or non-skeletal muscle tissue, and then the rest gets oxidized, and so that's where you got to you know keep refeeding. Um, uh, you got to keep refeeding your body protein and fats. So uh, I think most of it is just oxidized. Um, we can't store it, and maybe. There's something to the non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Maybe it makes you more active or something. Uh, again, that would be a pain in the ass study to do because I ain't doing it. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I think maybe someone will. <laughs> I think that probably right there, Jose, is the uh, what a lot of I think are con- I don't want to say contemporaries, but a lot of people need to hear is you know these studies that you know people like yourself are doing. You know, a year long study. The undertaking of that is, the headache that it is, and, you know, trying to apply that and learn anything from that from a scientific standpoint is, you know, incredibly difficult. Um, And I think the fact that, you know, a lot of your studies you've done very kind of real-world setting um, is actually super important, right? And I think um, Brent Ruby from University of Montana does this a lot, too, with his studies is... You know, the, the lab is one place, um, but if we can't translate that into the real world and what that really means, you know, we lose a lot of the important takeaways. So I think the fact that these studies have been done, you know, in kind of real-world people and real-world settings is actually, you know, a really big bonus because we can actually take something tangible and learn from them. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The way you describe it um, is the way I view it as well, but it's... Uh it's sort of different sides of the same coin because the same people who would agree with you, they would then say, well, because it's not tightly controlled, it, I don't know if the word is, they would say it's less valid, but to me, there's always a trade-off between control, having something tightly controlled and having something that's more applicable in the real world. And to me, you sort of have this dichotomy. Let's say you have these metabolic ward studies where it's usually overweight inactive people volunteering and, 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 and living in a way that doesn't resemble the real world. And then we have sort of free-living subjects who work their butts off. They exercise train in a manner that is unlike most, the most, uh, most of the American population. Um, but for me, the, what I find more interesting is sort of the, and that's why I do this stuff, is more of the real-world free-living application because, because I don't know anyone who lives in a metabolic ward. So it's... And I like the metabolic ward studies. I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool. Tightly controlled. You feed them this. This happens. Okay. To me, it's sort of like watching The Biggest Loser. Okay, you train eight hours a day. You got a personal <laughs> trainer yelling at you, and someone cooks for you. But when you go home, and that's not how you live. So um, it's a trade-off. It's a trade-off. And and as you know, since you, <laughs> you run Western blots, there's sort of that, God, there's that basic science that's kind of cool, and then there's that applied science, which you know, is it, it seems to be more meaningful immediately uh, in terms of giving answers. And so um, a lot of it is, you know, I, I want to know, I want to understand what happens when you just do simple, uh, you know, simple, uh, I guess, um, uh, perturbations or, or, you know, some, you know, give some sort of stimulus, whether it's an exercise stimulus or a, or a dietary stimulus. I just want to know what happens. I mean, I don't need to know the why. I just want to know, you know, the result. And to me, that's, that that's you know critically important. So it's, again, trade off between control versus application. And uh, some people like control, some people like application, some people are in between. Um, and that's why we have both basic science and applied science. Yeah. To to me, I think it should. And this is my bias here. 
There's so many questions like the studies you were running that we don't really have very good answers. I mean, there's not like a ton of data on it. So to me, I think that doing those studies like you were doing to determine, okay, if we you know, dramatically overfeed protein to a group of free living subjects, like what happens? You know, and then if we want to do more follow-up, more highly controlled studies, if you could ever get those kind of people to live in a metabolic chamber <laughs> for more than 48 hours, I'd be surprised. But <laughs> exactly, if you could, that's going to give you a little bit more of the, the why and the mechanistics part. And I think both of those are very interesting, but I tend to see a lot of highly mechanistic stuff going on, which is good to know, but you can't directly a lot of times translate that to what happens in the real world, you know? So I think doing the more real world quote unquote studies and then figuring out what we learned from there and then kind of doing the deeper dive all the way down into the, you know, mechanisms to me just kind of makes more sense, but that's my bias. No, I agree. I think, I think that's a good way of looking at it. I think there's a role for, for both mechanistic and applied type studies. And, um, you know, to me, one of the, and I remember this as an undergrad and, and a grad student, and, and it still goes on now. To me, one of the most common questions I would get would be the, the safety issue of eating a lot of protein. And, um, and I guarantee you that, assuming this paper gets published, this was, uh, I mean, uh, I looked at, uh, we studied uh, 14 highly trained men, and I'm sure the first criticism is one, it's only guys who are already in great shape and they work out. Two, it's a small sample size, and you're right, yeah, it's small, but God, it's, it's hard enough to get people to do anything for a year. <laughs> um, you know, so knowing those limitations, people will still not accept the fact that there is a lack of data showing harm when it comes to eating a higher-protein diet. So it, it, to me, it's sort of the moving goalpost. Well, okay, you did 14 subjects. How come you didn't do 100? And I'm like, mm-hmm. those I would be dead by the time I collected all that data, <laughs> <laughs> you know. So um, it's it's uh, for the people who are naysayers, nothing will ever no, nothing will ever ever satisfy them. And to me, you know, it's just one study out of you know a bunch. You know, maybe down the road some grad student will do their PhD on this, and so um, you know, we'll just have to wait. I mean, we'll just have to wait. Yeah, but we've seen that. We we talked to Stu Phillips uh, a few weeks ago, and we were asking him similar questions, and he said they're. You know, in healthy people, there really isn't any data showing that protein is harmful in terms of kidney function. I'm sure at some point you could find some harm. Um, our buddy, Dr. Lonnie Lowry, did you know some of those studies, as you guys know, looking at uh, protein seekers versus non-protein seekers and looked at a bunch of different kidney functions and microalbumin tests. Didn't see anything there. Um, so one of the little challenges I give to my students is, you know, if you can find any peer-reviewed data in healthy people that says too much protein is harmful, meaning causing damage to your kidneys, not just making them work a little bit more, let me know and I'll give you extra credit. But I can't give <laughs> extra credit, but <laughs> I haven't found any yet. So, <laughs> Let me ask you this. How long do you let them do that before you tell them that it's, you know... <laughs> chasing it's like a dog chasing its tail yeah it's like go find the white buffalo in the sky type thing but i let him go with it for quite a while just one i want to see how many people try and then two i really want to see what they find it's kind of cool Uh, but uh, it's funny how we love to torture students yeah yeah plus (laughs) just the exercise of uh trying to go find an unanswerable question is uh it's, it's just it's good, right? Because yeah, that's just part of life, man. If you're going to be a researcher, all the time, 
You know, it's we're like, you know, we're trying to answer questions that nobody knows the answer to. So maybe if anything, it'll uh, prompt them to think about how they would answer the question. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I'll have to do that again this semester, uh, this fall semester. Uh, send them on that wild goose chase. <laughs> yeah, I got a. I, last time I did, I got a couple interesting things from a website in the mail. So we had a little discussion about primary research and stuff. So it was still a useful task. So <laughs> <laughs> I hope they don't go to Wikipedia or WebMD. No, the the worst You're one I had, no. which. I probably shouldn't mention was they used a YouTube video from Tony Horton describing an exercise <laughs> principle. And I don't have anything against Tony Horton. It sounds like a good guy from all I know, but he didn't really have the principle right either. So it was <laughs> <laughs> the fact that it was from YouTube and yeah. So we had oh, a God. nice discussion oh. around that. <laughs> oh, God. I want to hear funny stories about students like all day. So. Oh man. If, Students are just, they make things so interesting sometimes. <laughs> um, I've got a, I got a question for you too is, you know, what a lot of people may not know is, you know, you're also on the, um, on the, the peer review publishing side of things being the, uh, the, the editor in chief of, uh, the journal of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. Um, and you know, that gives you a really, really interesting insight into kind of the, the research side of, of our field. Um, and I think there's a lot of kind of mis, misunderstanding about what peer review actually is and, you know, how as scientists kind of on the other side of things, you know, how we work together to you know, try to give the best answers possible to the public. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of times people don't really know what the scientific community is. So I'd love to hear from you just kind of, you know, what your thoughts on, you know, how we all work together and how that whole process, what you've learned through it, being on that side of the table. Yeah, you know, what's, you know, what's interesting is that the, the whole uh, process of peer review, um, because, of the, because of the proliferation of social media, basically you have what I call after-the-fact peer reviewers. <laughs> mm -hmm. So it's... it's, it's it, it's introduced a weird dynamic into the whole thing. Now, as a uh, uh, the editor-in-chief of the journal, and I'm also an associate editor or reviewer for about 10 other journals, I've been involved in this for God, since the 19, uh, late 1980s, uh, doing uh, reviewing papers or somehow working on editorial boards. And, and there is no when people you know ask about well how long does it take who who does reviewing is it always a good review and and really the quick answer to that is there's there's no general pattern when you look at um, who does reviewing how long it takes it's really different from journal to journal and it's even different from associate editor to associate editor like for instance let me explain the process with JISSN. If a paper comes in, uh, I'm one of three editors-in-chief, we share the title, and then there's about 10 associate editors. Most of the time, and this is the way I prefer it work, uh, most of the time I don't even see the paper, meaning it doesn't go to the editor-in-chief specifically. It actually go usually goes to an associate editor, and then they decide who reviews the paper. Um, and in fact, I've told the associate editors, I said, the whole point of you being an associate editor is so that you're making my life easier. I don't need to see the paper. 
You can outright reject it if you want. Don't ask me for permission. You could outright accept it if you want. Don't ask me for permission because if you're asking me for permission, then I'm being the freaking editor. You know, it's like you're the associate editor. You know, sort of do your job, and you know, you have you have a science background. You can figure this stuff out. So most of the papers I never see, and that's the way I like it. Um, I'd say about twenty to twenty-five percent of them come through me specifically, and then I assign a reviewer to it. But in general, I don't see. I don't see most of these papers. So when some papers are published, I'm like, huh, this is kind of interesting because uh, uh, I, I never knew about it, you know. And so not all journals are like that. A lot of journals, everything goes to the editor-in-chief, which, you know, if you have the time and you like doing that stuff, I'm like, hey, that's great. But I am much more of a delegator. I, I don't like working top-down. I don't like to dictate to anyone what they do. Um, it's like, hey, you guys have PhDs or MDs or whatever. You guys should be smart enough to figure out how to do all this. So, um, so yeah, it's nice to have the dozen or so associate editors to help uh, with the process. But again, it's different from every journal, and and so and that's where people get confused. They're like, well, wait a minute. So you don't see the paper I submit? I'm like, no, actually, I don't. I mean. I actually have to email associate editors and say, hey, which one of you works on this paper? And, and, and I'll do that if someone asks me, but, but usually I try to stay completely out of it because it's, you know, it's, it's, it, c- introducing myself into it is something that's just not necessary. Now, on the flip side, um, the actual review process. My, when people ask me how do I do a review, I, I, when I got out of grad school, and I don't know how, you know, because Brad, you're fairly young, Mike, you're young, when I got out of grad school, I, and I don't know if this is something that's more, uh, you know, newly minted PhDs or whatnot, I tended to be very adversarial with reviews, meaning, you know, I'm going to show them what I know, and I'm going to, you know, criticize this paper and figure out all the holes. And I've evolved to more of, you know, hey, this is kind of a cool paper. I would suggest maybe do this or maybe clean this up or whatever. And I tend to be more, hey, let's figure out how to make the paper better versus, hey, let's beat the shit out of this paper. Um, you know, cause I always, it's funny. I, uh, I think it was Tim Ziegenfuss who had a conversation with, we're like, you know who the two worst reviewers are? They're grad students and newly minted PhDs. <laughs> they, they beat the crap out of every paper. And I'm like, yeah, I've noticed that too. It's like, they got to prove something, which I guess they do in some weird sense. But, um, I'm very like, I, I will rarely outright reject the paper unless the English itself is bad. And I usually reject it by saying, just get it rewritten and then resubmit it because the English just isn't good enough for anyone to review. But outside of that, I mean, unless the paper is written really bad, I actually try to fix it in the sense that I think it's better um, when it's finally published. Now, to me, the, the very annoying and very uh, frustrating part is when a paper gets published, whether it's JISSN or any journal, and then you have all the social media experts coming out and saying, well, uh, the sample size is too small, treatment duration is too short, and this, that, and this. And I'm thinking, <laughs> it is so easy to criticize a paper. And I think, oh, yeah. it, but it's so hard to do a study. It's, <laughs> it's, you know, I call it the ultimate in Monday morning quarterbacking. It's like, you know, they see <laughs> no. a paper. They can read it in like 10 minutes like, ah, this paper sucks. And it's like well, the amount of time spent on that study, no matter the flaws, because there are many flaws with every paper. It's just, it's just, I mean, I sort of laugh and then I sort of like, wow, these people just know it all here. <laughs> they read a paper and they know everything. It's like, oh my God. Um, to me, 
doing research itself is a brutal experience. It's, you know, it's a difference between you, the scientists, you're making movies, and the critics out there are just movie critics. You know, it's uh, making movies a lot harder than sitting in a theater and criticizing the movie. And that's what we have with social media. It's a bunch of movie critics. So. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think one of the things, Jose, that a lot of us, you know, a lot of people don't really appreciate and understand, you know, a lot of these criticisms that the, the social media give papers is a lot of the issues that people bring up with papers were things that the the group of scientists or, or researchers that worked on a project thought about ahead of time and tried yes. to figure out ways to deal with. Um, and it wasn't due to, you know, laziness or lack of care or lack of attention. It's usually a logistic reason, an IRB reason, um, or there's some very specific reason as to why things were the way they were. You know, if the, the longer you spend around the research people is the more you realize how thorough they are, how much they do care about the quality of their work. And a lot of times those limitations were just unavoidable things that, you know, you just couldn't do anything otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, I don't think the general public understands the amount of thought and, and the, really the arguments that might go back and forth within a lab or within your peers saying, you know, why, why did you choose this measure versus this measure? Why didn't you do this? Why did you do this? And it's, it's, it's sort of like this, if, if you could wave a magic wand and just measure everything, well, then I'm sure we would measure everything. But, you know, we don't have the time, we don't have the resources to absolutely measure everything. And it reminds me of this thread. I don't know if you saw it. It was a thread on Facebook, oddly enough, about protein. And there was a guy who basically criticized the recommendations for eating protein. And he basically came up with a laundry list of things that... No one had studied, meaning, well, we don't know what the effects of protein <laughs> intake are on toenail fungus and psoriasis, and he just listed a whole bunch of stuff. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, that would be a hell of a study to do if you were to measure it, every, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do every, measure every health parameter that's possible. You know, when you put someone on a high protein diet, so it's you know, it's 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 this unreasonable expectation that non scientists have of scientists. Um, where it's almost like these criticisms are like, well, this is what I thought of, and how come they didn't think of it? And it's like, well, no, they probably thought of it, but you know, they they want to have a life too, and they can't just be in the lab and not ever leave. <laughs> I usually ask those people to pull out their checkbook and pay for it too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you mean you need money? Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Things don't. The uh, unfortunately, the NIH just doesn't give us blank checkbooks and uh, and unlimited resources and funds. It's kind of a it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And the hard part, too, is that by doing one thing, it means you can't do the other thing, right? So when I did the, the study on Monster Energy Drink, I had to pick between doing uh, ride time to exhaustion, right? So you ride as long as you possibly can so you can't go any further. Measure Which the is distance. a pain in the butt, by the way. That's hard to do. It's That's not <laughs> fun to enroll people. And I went through and did the protocol myself a couple of times, and it's it's not fun. Oh, awful. <laughs> oh my um, versus a time trial. So a time trial is, you know, more like a real world, quote unquote, you know, sporting event, right? The first person to, you know, cross the line in the marathon with the shortest time is the winner. And there's pros and cons to you know, both of it, right? So ride time to exhaustion, you can use a lot of the early caffeine data. The downside with uh, time trial, even though it's more applicable to sports performance, 
is that there can be a huge learning effect, right? So people learn how to pace themselves. They learn how to perform the test better. So then you have to have a lot more simulation testing. And so I ended up using a ride time to exhaustion for various reasons that I just mentioned. And then even then you'll still have people and even reviewers who are like, oh no, you should have, you should have picked the other one. It's like, well, I could have, but if I show a learning effect, I'm screwed. Um, so if I have, then I have to get people to maybe do five or six trials, you know, and your time expands. And then you can have the counter argument of, well, you can't compare this now to the early caffeine research, which is where most of the data is. And at the end of the day, you just pick what you think is the best method. You know, here's why I picked it. Here's the research that I'm, you know, basing it upon. Mm -hmm. So even when I do reviews now, having been through the whole, you know, process and everything, my biggest question I ask people is, okay, why did you pick this method? You know, because a lot of journals, there's limits of how much time they can, you know, explain, how many references they can quote and that kind of stuff. I'm more interested in their thought process to make sure, one, that matches the data we currently have. And most of the time, they know the exact limitations of the reason that they did, right? So it's pretty rare they come back and go, I don't know, I just like this one better, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Which is what because I think because it was easier. Yeah, <laughs> which is what I think a lot of people who aren't familiar with research kind of just think. Well, I don't know. They just did what was ever easy and whatever they like. It's like no, there's there's usually pretty good reasons they did what they did. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and also another thing is um, some labs are geared, and I'm talking more basic science labs. Some geared are, are are geared really just to do one or two things, like. Right, uh, right. When I was doing my PhD, I mean, a big chunk of the lab is we did histology and immunocytochemistry, and that's what the lab was set up for. So it's not like we could suddenly introduce something new. It's like, well, this is what we do, and this is the technology that's part of the lab. And I think that's, you know, that's just, you know, we did it because that's what we have. <laughs> we don't have other equipment. So, um, you know, and I think as scientists, we understand that. I mean, you know, whether people argue about time to exhaustion versus a time trial, you know, it's sort of like six of one, half dozen of another. Yeah, you, yeah. you go with your measure and you do it. I mean, and they each have their plus, pluses and minuses, and that's, that's really the best you could do. Yeah, and especially if you're, my argument was if you're measuring a new intervention and there isn't really much direct data on either one, it's still moving everything forward, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Mike, I think you make a great point there because, you know, from my perspective is every time we read some new paper, the best thing you can do is learn something from it and you can always take something from it. Whether it's, I mean, every study has limitations, small sample size, methods, yada, yada, but every single piece you can learn something from. Um, and, and that's really what you should put your energy and focus on is, you know, what do I learn from this new piece of information that I didn't know that now I can use and apply and, and get better results in whatever I'm doing instead of spending a lot of the energy worrying about all that kind of stuff, you know, because the peer review's been done, the paper's been published, now it's time to take that and learn from it instead of spend a lot of energy doing other things. Yeah, and one of my favorite quotes on that is, research kind of generally points the direction and then me search kind of gives you the answer you want right so <laughs> for the average person listening they're like okay i want to know if eating more protein will result in better body composition so i go read a bunch of studies or read some of dr antonio's work and the conclusion i come out to is i think that's probably a good thing for me to test so i'm going to go 
you know, eat more protein, see if I get leaner, see if my body composition is better, right? I, I've often joked with clients that if they got some result for something that we worked on together and 13 studies show that it's not possible, but they still got the result, they don't care about the 13 studies, <laughs> right? <laughs> it's kind of my job to, to look at all that and say, okay, here's a pretty good place you need to start and we'll kind of tweak it as we go. You know, instead of saying, well, you know, uh, let's just start in a low protein diet and eat 30 grams a day and see how that goes. Right. Probably not so well. Um, but I think people, a lot of times reading the research are thinking that this is going to tell me the exact answer that this one yeah. magical study is going to tell me everything I ever wanted to know about protein. And mm, not really. Right. You're just trying to look for a consensus in the research and the reality is different researchers need more or less data to kind of reach whatever they consider a, a consensus. You know, is that three studies, four studies, 17 studies? Yeah, everyone kind of has their own little threshold of, of where that's at. So, Yeah, and, and to sort of further that point, I mean, when you're dealing with clients, let's say, that are on the untrained or recreational side, you have a lot of leeway to play with. There's a lot of different oh, yeah. things you can do that will make them better. Um, if you go to the extreme of highly competitive athletes, you're dealing with minute changes where every little thing you do could be criti- may or may be critically important for, let's say, improving their their race time by five seconds. Which you know, for a study, that's nothing, but for them, it might be quite meaningful. Or maybe they're lifting you know, five kilos more, which for them is significant. But for, you know, if you read it in the study, you're like, wow, five kilos, that's nothing. And that's where these sort of odd arguments about, well, this is kind of a waste of time. Uh, most studies show that doesn't do anything well. When you're dealing with elite athletes, you, you, in a sense, have to try all of those things that might help, even if it helps just a teeny bit, because you don't have the luxury of waiting 10 years to figure out whether these tiny tiny, tiny pieces of stimuli or stimulus you give to an athlete are going to help them. I mean, it's funny. When I look at training programs of not just elite athletes, but, you know, at the college level, I guess, I don't know if you consider that elite, but at the college level, when I look at the actual training program, I have yet to see one that is based on a study ever in my yeah. life. Uh, yet, there are people who, are, who say, well, this and sort of the, the analogy is in the supplement world where they're waiting for like 100 studies on one supplement, yet these are the same people who prescribe exercise training programs that have no studies. And, and to me, that's actually fine, but you can't have two standards. And to me, as long as you follow basic scientific principles, whether it's nutrition or diet, uh, supplements or training, that's all you can ask for because you're never going to find a specific study that will, that will support, and, and I'm going to beat up on the people who work in strength and conditioning, 99.99% of what they do, there's no studies behind it. None. I mean, the, whatever periodization program they put a football player on, they're individualizing it. There's no studies on that. So, um, And that's where I think, in a way, some people over-science some of this stuff. I mean, what you do is, I think what you need to do is just go on basic principles of exercise training and, and then, you know, be creative. Uh, you know, I'm not going to wait for a study to figure out you know, what kind of volume load I should give a power lifter or bodybuilder. And I'm not going to wait for a study to determine, you know, how many miles per week a runner needs to run. Uh, it's going to be all individualized. So, you know, there's, there's a sort of a vocal group of people who want a study done on everything. <laughs> and 
and it's like you ain't you, you want a study done on this? Yeah, good luck. It ain't happening. But, but those <laughs> so, studies, Jose, they have to be done on all the elite athletes. Otherwise, they don't apply. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I often joke that I'm good friends with Cal Dietz, University of Minnesota, and it's like if I went over there and I talked to him and said, "Hey, buddy." I want to borrow your, your college athletes, not elite athletes, but college athletes for eight weeks. I want them to do my program that I wrote, and then I'll give them back to you at the end of eight weeks. He told me to go jump off a bridge, right? Because, I mean, his salary and everything that he gets paid is to get them a result. It's not to send them over to do my study. You know, as much as he would love to do that in a perfect world and not have it you know, harm their performance and everything else, it's just not really that practical either, you know, and people yeah. tend to forget that. Well, you can do the study and say, well, well, Group A did really well. Group B, they're kind of crappy, uh, right. but here's your, here are your guys. <laughs> here, here, I'm back. Good luck, buddy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the other thing, too, is you've got to remember we're dealing with people and humans, and, you know, yep. it doesn't matter how perfect a, a study shows you something. If you can't get people to do something, I mean, you know, who gives a shit about the the results of a paper, right? I mean, <laughs> exactly. You, you can have the perfect diet and the perfect training program, but if it makes somebody miserable and they hate it, I mean, you're going to get zero results. So, you know, there's the, the actual practical pragmatic pieces of these are the most important, you know, from my perspective in terms of, you know, like Jose said, basic fundamental principles and apply those in, in the appropriate context and, and work with people where they're at. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, Jose, do you have any other uh, you know awesome topics that you wanna you wanna chat about? Um, I know that maybe we can give some people some some cool new stuff that's coming out. I know you just finished up the ISSN conference. You know, were there any big highlights in terms of new things that you've seen that you think are going to be pretty cool or that people might be really interested in hearing about? Well, I will be um, this fall. I. I I will be starting on a couple new uh, studies. One, um, it's interesting. I, I only learned about uh, uh, the area of probiotics. I don't know if you guys follow it because I didn't follow it um, until maybe a month ago. Um, a buddy of mine said, you should look at the probiotic data. I mean, there's some good animal data. There's some human data. It might actually help body comp. And I said, huh, really? He's like, yeah, just look at it. So, I'm going to do a protein supplementation study that involves probiotics. It'll be with or without probiotics to see how it impacts um, um, body composition. The other one, which I don't know if I'll start this fall or do in the spring, is I want to do, and this is only because I watch girls do this all the time. They love peanut butter. I want to do a peanut <laughs> butter overfeeding study. I'm com- I want to compare peanut butter to protein because um, girls eat that stuff like it's crack. So. I'm like, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to do peanut butter just because I'm sure I could get every girl on campus to volunteer for it. That um, might be the most uh, social media <laughs> shared yeah. publication in the history of the world. Yeah, you know what, I, I don't get it. I mean, I like peanut butter, but I eat it maybe once a month or something. And some people are like, oh, my God, I could eat a jar of this stuff. I'm like, really? Wow. Peanut butter? <laughs> but all the aflatoxins, Jose, come on. <laughs> <laughs> that's true <laughs> yeah so uh so yeah i want to do that you know i like this here's the funny thing i like this overfeeding stuff because let's face it i mean none of us really like dieting who likes to diet i like to overfeed <laughs> you know so i'm gonna see what it does you know when people just eat too much of whatever food i pick you know so um those are some of the cool things i'm gonna be doing this fall and 
Hopefully, I'll present it next year at ISSN, which will be in Phoenix, Arizona. So, oh, Phoenix. Uh, yeah, yeah. And then we'll be back to Clearwater Beach. Every other year, just so you guys know, every other year we are at the beach. So that that's, is my decision. Uh, that's on my list of, of places to come. Clearwater is <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I was, uh, this is the first time I wasn't able to make it down there this year in about six years. So it's, it's a good time. Yeah, in fact, uh, just just uh, sort of keep this in the back of your head. So we're in Phoenix next year, then Clearwater Beach, then Las Vegas, then Daytona Beach. So, oh, oh wait, keeping yeah, keeping the beach theme, keeping the beach theme. Nice. And then we'll get you guys. We'll do. We'll set up like a paddleboard race, so we'll all get out there and race. Yeah, can I, can I strap a kite to mine? <laughs> <laughs> a little. You know, wind if you could do that when there's no wind. <laughs> <laughs> i gotta use a hydrofoil so <laughs> yeah oh, yeah that's true you could do that so uh but yeah so uh so yeah those are some of the things i'm doing um uh to me some of the some of the cool stuff that, that i remember uh at issn is hopefully you guys can do this next year we did the um uh this was the first time i introduced it we did the data blitz where everyone yeah. gets to present original unpublished data and they get 60 seconds it's it's Absolutely hilarious watching some of these guys and girls try to cram <laughs> stuff in in one minute because they hear the buzzer. It's like, eh, okay, your time's up, and it's just funny. I mean, if you guys can take part in it, it'd be great. It's, uh, it's to me, it's it it fits my short attention span. I'm like, you know, I could I could watch this for sixty seconds each. I can do this. <laughs> so, awesome. so yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much for being on the show. And then as we wrap up here, if people are interested in about, because we get this question a lot of, you know, well, well how much protein should I eat? If, how would you answer that question? You know, I think if you are someone who, who is training for a specific goal, and, and I will exclude those people who just go to the gym three times a week, walk their dog. I mean, they're just interested in general fitness. You know, to me, I don't know if it really matters one way or the other. To me, uh, just try to eat unprocessed foods. Don't worry about counting calories, counting protein, and all that. However, if you're a competitive athlete, whether that means you're a, rec- you're a runner who likes to do races on the weekends, you're a recreational bodybuilder, to me, the minimal, the minimal or baseline protein intake should be a gram per pound or 2.2 grams per kilo. Would it hurt to eat more? The answer to that is no. Would it possibly help? Maybe. Uh, now, there's a trade-off because... I, it's hard to eat that much. I mean, it's it's not like you can just sit down and eat, you know, three grams per kilo. You gotta you gotta really plan it out. So to me, it, it's funny. You go back to the recommendations bodybuilders have used for years. You know, the one gram per pound seems to work well, really, for most competitive uh, athletes. So so that's what I would that's what I would recommend. Um, if you want to go higher than that, then you know, it's not going to hurt. It might help, but again, there's sort of a, a law of diminishing returns. The more you consume the less of an effect it'll have. Awesome. And where can people find out more about you? Well, probably, you know, most of uh, uh, the easiest way to reach me is either through Facebook or through the ISSN website. The ISSN website is ISSN.net. And then I'm on Facebook. We have an ISSN page on Facebook. And uh, I have a somewhat regular presence there, so it's always easy to reach me. Uh, via Facebook. And my Twitter handle is Jose Antonio PhD, so I'm on Twitter as well. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for being on the program here today. We'll let you get back to your nice off day there in, in sunny <laughs> Florida since you're staying out of Minnesota. That's right. That's right. I think I'm going to go uh, go get some sushi now and get my omega-3 fatty acids oh, and white. Oh, <laughs> good choice. Let's, 
All right, well, you enjoy that while uh, the rest of us go ahead and slave away in the lap. Yeah, you have fun, Brad and Mike. Uh, thank you very much. And Brad's we'll... got to go poke some more rats. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, have fun, gentlemen. I'll talk to you guys later. Awesome. All right, thanks thank so much, you, Jose. We really appreciate it. It was awesome All to right. chat. Okay, bye-bye.